Okay, folks, welcome back. Uh, tonight we are going to kind of soften up a little bit. We'll deal with a very uncontroversial, kind of soft, easy and light topic. Uh, the ethics of capital punishment, sort of inconsequential to human life, but we'll deal with that one tonight. And um, just a quick update. At the, beginning of the at the beginning of the course, I gave you that list of questions that... Uh, I wanted you to start to look into and think about. So um, I want to be conscious of the fact that some of you probably like, don't mind speaking publicly, maybe others don't. But what I would like you to do is to come up with maybe a half to one page write-up on how you would answer that question from a Christian perspective. And then bring it to the final night and we'll sort of do a combination approach. If anybody would like to take a few minutes to come up, I'll probably give like four or five spots for a few people to come up and present their um, findings. And then the rest will just sort of work in pairs or small groups and sort of share their findings with each other. So basically what I'm trying to do is, instead of just coming every night and listening and taking notes, I'd like for you to be a little proactive and research a topic and try to come up with a, an opinion um, all on your own. And then you get a little bit of peer scrutiny by bringing it to class and having a little conversation about it. So that's, that's the idea. Okay? So hopefully you all read that list. And does anybody have the list with them? I didn't bring it. Someone want to just read it out for the rest of the group? Nancy, would you mind doing that? Yeah, just the questions, yeah. Yep. Is it okay to bet on sports? Is it okay to gamble? To enter draws? Is pulling the plug ever justified? Is it okay to kill a house invader or a mouse? Is it a sin <laughs> to smoke? Is it okay to teach children about Santa? Is, it, is participation in Halloween permissible? Is it right to have whoa, cosmetic surgery? Oh, dear. <laughs> 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 what a <mystery> <laughs> Guess you're going to find out. Either confession or thanksgiving. Ooh, is it okay to withhold information when directly asked? Okay, so those are just some practical questions. They're sort of a step down maybe from the ones we're dealing with in class. The ones we're dealing with in class affect national ethic, government policies in many ways, maybe even denominational perspectives. Um, I don't know of any denomination that's ever written a policy statement on cosmetic surgery. <laughs> But these are some practical everyday questions that Christians might talk to you about or you may have thought through yourself and I'd like you to take some time to pick one and, and research it and be able to have an intelligent conversation about it, okay? So the ethics of capital punishment. What is capital punishment? Well, ca the word capital in English, apparently it's derived from the Latin. I've never studied Latin. I was too young. They canceled the course before I went to school. But uh, some of you may have studied Latin. I don't know, but it comes from the Latin word caput, uh, which is uh, an appropriate word, uh, used of the head or of life or of the civil rights of individuals. The word apparently implies chief or principal or extreme penalty. So capital punishment meaning like there's nothing a whole lot worse than that because you're dead, right? So that's the idea. And three, at least three reasons why 
this tends to be a hot button issue is first of all because it's emotional i mean you you're you're talking about uh, participating in or advocating or if you're in a judicial role making a decision that might end a person's life it's an it's emotional there's also generally a lot of emotions involved because presumably the person that may potentially be a candidate for capital punishment did something that caused other people emotional damage i.e. a murderer, a rapist, or something like that. So there's a, there's a lot of emotion attached to it. And because of that, if you listen to people, the arguments that are presented for or against are generally a combination of something theological with some social notion of human life with a whole lot of emotion mixed in. So we just need to recognize that, that it is an emotional issue, and you may have or come to a strong view on a particular you may there's two main views retentionists and abolitionists you may come to one of those views and hold it dearly and try to convince another person of it but they may not even listen because the emotions just blocking the ability for them to listen secondly it's very social it's by definition a a governmental or societal issue, capital punishment is not thought of as one person taking another person's life. It's, it's a group of people, a country or a clan or an ethnic group saying, we agree together this person has to go. And certainly from a Christian perspective, it's very spiritual. I mean, you don't want to get this one wrong because you may potentially be uh, playing the role of God from a certain perspective. Or you may be, if you're, I guess, um, of a certain theological persuasion, ripping a person off from the opportunity to be saved. Um, you're messing with human life, right? So we're talking about a very spiritual uh, issue. So what we're going to do, um, when I've had these kind of courses before, I've always put a chart like this up on the board. And I, I'd like to begin by asking you to just tell us where you stand on these issues. And you're allowed to change your mind later on, or you're allowed to keep your position. That's fine. But uh, I'm going to present to you five scenarios. Some of them are kind of grotesque, but they are based upon real-life scenarios that we have read about in the news. Perhaps even some of you have experienced through the death of extended family members or whatnot. So the idea here is I'm going to give you five scenarios, that's the one to five, and you need to choose the, what you would consider the appropriate punishment for that crime. Now we're going to assume that in all five of these scenarios, you're a judge. You're the judge and the jury. So you're not a, you can't say, I don't know. Judges aren't allowed to do that. They, um, they have to make a decision. Now in this particular situation, the five situations, the decision is guilty. So now it rests with you to determine what the appropriate penalty is for the crime that's been committed. And again, some of them are graphic, but I, I wanted to use these because they are based upon real-life examples or a composite of real-life examples that we have even experienced in our own lifetimes. So imagine you're a judge, you're in the following trials, the defendant re receives a verdict of guilty of murder, and it's up to you to impose a punishment. And you 
I know this isn't the case here, but for this exercise, your country allows for a broad breadth of options from total amnesty, just let the guy go, to capital punishment. So what should their sentence be? And um, after we've sort of gone through the chart, we're going to kind of have some opportunity to, for you to answer the question, why? Okay. Now, um, try not to be judgmental of other people, because you may advocate counseling and someone else may advocate something on the other end. So here are, here are your options. And I just shorten, put these in short form. So send the person to counseling. Okay? Send the person to counseling. Presumably they've done a little jail time while they're waiting for their trial. Give them some parole afterwards. Two years less a day. So they go to the Southwest Detention Center. Something in between life and two years, I've just picked the number, 15 years in jail. Or life, life in jail. CP, capital punishment. Or torture them and then capital punishment. Okay? I see Nancy's already picked her. Okay? So, this, this, this happens, right? In certain countries they do that kind of thing. So, and historically, I mean, it's not unprecedented. So here are your here are your scenarios, and we'll we'll um, we'll try to I'll just try to put some marks down here to get a general idea for how many people fall into whatever category. So scenario one, Bobby Smith. You'll notice I'm trying to be very Canadian. I've picked several names from several ethnic groups to represent these people. So Bobby Smith. He he has worked in the same factory for 28 years, but he was let go. He's fired by new, a new management team. Why? Because they want to hire more youthful employees. So let's just say he's been treated unfairly. Uh, Smith was so enraged that as he was being escorted from the company property, he grabs a security guard's revolver and shoots the security guard in the head, killing him instantly. But he's had no previous run-ins with the law. Okay. So, um, just a show of hands, how many of you think counseling is the appropriate penalty for Smith's crime. Okay. Zero. Counseling with parole. Okay. Two years less a day. Okay. Fifteen. One, two, three, four, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Okay, I'll go down the rows here. Put your hands up again. One, two, three, four. Okay, 20. Life. Capital punishment. Torture with capital punishment. Okay. Zero. Okay. <laughs> Next scenario. Stephen Wong was beaten by his father almost daily through his childhood. As an adult, he goes through a bitter divorce, this is the gross, the gross one, because his wife claims that he was verbally abusive towards their three kids and prone to violence. Three weeks after the divorce was finalized, Wong barges into his wife's apartment, ties up his wife, sexually assaults his 10-year-old daughter in front of his wife, and then strangles all three of his children in front of their mother. Counseling. I actually taught this course once and someone opted for counseling, and I've teased him about it ever since, because he, 
I think he worked a midnight shift or something the night before. Uh, counseling with parole. Two years. Fifteen. Life. Capital punishment. Torture plus capital punishment. Three. Okay. Okay. Scenario number three. Jenny Valdez is a young college student. She attends a party, gets drunk. She's offered a ride home but refuses, insisting that she can handle it. While driving home, she hits and kills a 59-year-old man and his three-year-old grandson. She immediately drives to a police station and turns herself in. Counseling. Counseling with parole. Two years. Fifteen. Somebody put their hand down halfway through, but I'll say 13. Life. Capital punishment. Capital punishment with torture. Okay. Okay, next scenario. 17-year-old Arthur Kaysen is an outcast at his school but finds friendship in the goth subculture. While most of his new goth friends are peaceful, one guy, Alan, is prone to resolving things by violence. Kasson is attracted to Alan's ideology, and the two conspire to shoot up the school. Both young men enter their high school and open fire. Uh, they shoot 16 students before being shot by police. Alan dies. Uh, Kasson is wounded but recovers. At the trial, it's discovered that each student shot eight people but only five die, all from shots fired by Alan, not by Arthur. So, counseling. Counsel plus parole. Two years. Fifteen years. Life. Capital punishment. Uh, torture plus capital punishment. Okay. And we have one more scenario. Over a 30-year period, psychopath Ahmed Abu Rene kills and dismembers 22 people, storing some of their body parts in his house. Upon arrest, he openly confesses to all the crimes, bragging that he would have committed more if he'd been able to do so. Counseling. Counsel with parole. Two years. Fifteen. Life.
13, I think. Capital punishment. And torture with capital punishment. Two. Okay. Okay. Don't want to mess with our resident border officers. <laughs> if you're ever coming across the border and, you're, and you meet, meet the Gways, make sure you declare what you have. <laughs> okay. So um, if, you, if you sort of analyze this for a moment, notice all zeros here, because every one of them involves the taking of life. So I, you know, I, that's not particularly surprising. Um, in, one, in one scenario, we have uh, uh, a little more leniency. You know, on the left side there, we have counsel and parole. The majority of the numbers fall in this category, if you notice, these three columns. Anywhere from 15 years to capital punishment with, um, it looks like, probably if you look down at almost a bit of an even split, this one didn't get any for the 15 years, but you have you know significant numbers: 15, 13, 10, 13, 12, 17, 20. Those two together would be, I guess, 11. So even in a room like this, we have a diversity of opinions as to what the appropriate punishment would be. The most diverse one would be scenario number three. You'll notice we have a spread across five columns. What scenario was that one? The drunk driving. Yeah, so we have everything from counseling with parole right through to capital punishment. So there's a, a lot of variety in this room. Interestingly, I don't know if that surprised, that surprised anybody. A lot of variety in this room as to what the appropriate punishment would be. We actually have several, for the size of this class, we have a fairly sizable number that at least in one scenario we're comfortable with capital punishment. And um, so it just kind of illustrates maybe the importance of having discussions like this because we do have a lot of opinions on the issue. So what we're going to do then is we're going to get into all the basic arguments. Now, I'm just going to present you with the arguments. I'm not going to attach all the verses that each side might go to at this point. Just going to go through a rundown of the two major views. So. View number one is an abolitionist. So this is the same word that would be used for someone who wants to abolish slavery. It's just the same word. So this is an abolitionist, not with regard to slavery, but someone that says, I want to abolish capital punishment, meaning it's never acceptable. And then a retentionist is someone who wants to keep it. Now that's sort of a, it's kind of old language because in our country, um, neither of those categories formally apply because you can't abolish something we don't do and you can't retain something we don't do. But thinking of it more globally, you're either an abolitionist or you're a retentionist or you just don't know. So let's look at the basic arguments. Many of these I'm sure you will have heard from people or maybe hold to yourself. And so I'm going to try to be fair to both sides by just presenting you with with the arguments. So the, let's start with the abolitionists. So the first argument, and these are no particular order, is it is a fearsome or barbaric method. A fearsome or barbaric method. So 
way back in 1914, I love the the uh, the the um, the titles they came up with for with for societies, social or political societies back in the day. I was reading a National Geographic article earlier today, and there was a title of some society from way back when, and it kind of had a cool name. But this one is called The Meeting of the Men's International Theosophical League of Humanity. And they met on March the 31st, 1914, and came up with this statement. Capital punishment is a barbarous survival from a less enlightened... Everybody in that category. A less enlightened and refined age. It is incongruous and incompatible with our present standard of civilization and humanity. It has been abolished by many states and countries, and we must look forward to the day when the other governments will follow suit. So obviously that's a pretty straightforward position. What would they consider to be, or why would they consider this to be a barbarous act? Well, the following four common forms of execution are a 2,500-volt electric chair. 2,500 volts, is that pretty powerful, Sam? Yeah, so Sam's an electrician. He says that would kill a man pretty quick. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. So that's, people might look at that and say, you know, the, the act. Have you ever seen the Green Mile? Especially, you know, there's some other things there that are very disturbing, but it's a, it's a disturbing act, regardless of whether you are an abolitionist, an abolitionist or retentionist. This is a disturbing movie, especially when the guy forgets this or doesn't put the sponge in water. Uh, hanging, which can also lead to possible decapitation. It's kind of gruesome. I'm most fascinated by the old movies, like the Braveheart movies, where they all come to the public square and all their kids are with them. And, you know, we have people in our church that won't read their kids the stories of uh, Solomon's uh, feud with the two women. Well, let's cut the baby in half. Well, it didn't actually happen, but there's parents that won't, won't read that to their kids. They won't read about the details of the crucifixion or the resurrection, none of that. But, you know, historically people would bring their kids what are we going to do this Saturday afternoon? Let's go for ice cream and a hanging. You know? uh, firing squad is, uh, you know, admittedly a difficult thing to watch. Or you might say, well, there's softer methods like um, toxic application of toxic drugs. But then you hear stories about mismanaged, uh, mismanaged application of toxic drugs. So the point being is these are the kind of things that tend to affect people emotionally, and um, many people would have a really hard time seeing an actual human go through that. They might not have a problem watching it in a fictional movie, but um, certainly not in real life. A second major argument is that it doesn't protect society or deter crime. Um, now, I mean, I'm not saying that's necessarily a valid argument or not I don't I don't know the specifics of all the statistics but it is an argument that's put forward it doesn't it doesn't stop crime I mean it would be hard to argue that capital punishment doesn't stop that criminal and clearly it does um, but the question is does it deter crime on a broader level another one is it doesn't provide an opportunity for rehabilitation now let's let's understand that the concept of rehabilitation is a more modern notion uh, 
within judicial systems and corrections. So what do we call our prison system? Corrections Canada, right? I don't know if that's the official name, but I think it is. Corrections Canada, we call them correctional facilities. That's a philosophical statement. That's different than jail, penitentiary. You're correcting that person's behavior, or at least attempting to correct that person's behavior. And there's a whole philosophy behind that. And don't kid yourself, if, you, if you're born and bred in Canada, and you've heard that language from the time you're young, your philosophy of what punishments are suitable to, for a particular crime are going to be affected by that language, whether you've thought about it or not. Oh, we correct behavior in jail, we rehabilitate. If, if every time we talk about jail or, or prison, we use words like rehabilitation or correction, that's going to shape your notion of what a penalty is. And further to that, we all are young enough that we have um, been raised in a society that has a very different view, or at least we've parented within a society that has a very different view than some past generations on discipline period, how to discipline children. Um, many people, even in Christian communities, have bachelors of social work from secular faculties or masters of social work or work in social work or work for CAS or foster kids or you know went through fostering programs. And all of those uh, taught in public schools, all of those agencies have a very different view of punishment than 50 years ago. Very different view. I'm just old enough to say that I was spanked in school. I was spanked by my kindergarten teacher on a bare bum in a bathroom with the door shut. And I deserved it. Um, yeah. Well, I'll tell you. We used to have Story Circle. And I didn't really like Story Circle that much. And uh, I would sit next to the piano made of wood, and every time the story started, I'd reach behind the piano, and just a sec, kids, she'd go to the door, oh. start the story, okay, and eventually little Aaron was caught, and anyway, and then I was, I was strapped in the hand once, probably in grade three or four, for punching a VJ in the nose, my little Indian friend. But um, they don't do that anymore. Okay? They don't do that anymore. Uh, at least not in our country. Um, by the way, just so I don't feel left out, how many of you were spanked in school? All right, we got a few. Right, go. <laughs> Joyce Bell and Susan Clark were spanked in school? How? Oh. <laughs> Why don't you share, Mrs. Clark? <laughs> and you were a kindergarten teacher. <laughs> the strap. <laughs> but it's a different world, right? I mean, we would have people in our church, I know, because I've had the conversations afterward. If I were to ever, I have, I haven't lately, 
But uh, if I mention, oh, I spanked my kids, they just they go crazy on me. I had a guy threaten to leave the church years ago for that. I just can't believe you would ever spank your kids. That's absolutely wrong. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, Mr. Malcolm. Did I kick the piano? <laughs> no. <laughs> but we live in a diverse society when it comes to issues of punishment. Some people don't believe in punishment at all, even in the church. They believe in maybe correcting or reminding or timeouts. I remember years ago, actually not that many years ago, probably six or seven years ago, Susie and I thought about becoming foster parents and um, we had a social worker over and you know she she asked about the spanking thing and I said well we I mean our kids are getting a little old for that at the time but I said we we have spanked our kids but we already talked about that because I knew you'd ask the question and I said we won't we're not going to spank a foster kid obviously because I don't know the background and whatnot and she's like oh you you can't you can't uh have one of our kids even if you have well I'm not I'm not going to spank them I'm going to like you know I would maybe give them some time out no you can't give them time out that breeds a sense of uh, alienation so I said do you mean if I like sent them to their room no you're not allowed to do that now I did talk to an, uh, two other social workers that work for the same agency and they told me that was just that person's personal opinion that it's not legislated at the time but really like you if I say to my kid okay you just punched your sister in the face go to your bedroom for an hour no you can't do that so it's very different than the way I was raised. <laughs> but that's one of the realities. So uh, another one would be then, it is too final considering the possibility of judicial error. I mean, this is an error of justice that can't be rectified. We've heard stories of people going to jail for 20 years and all of a sudden DA evidence proves they didn't commit the rape. But if you take someone's life, abolitionists would say you can't correct the error in judgment another argument for abolitionists is that we become murderers ourselves and we practice capital punishment so they would quote the decalogue or the ten commandments that say you shall not kill and they would use that uh, as a proof text for banning capital punishment or when Jesus said, forgive your enemies, that would be another proof text that would be employed. How can you forgive and still punish would be the basic question behind the statement. Capital punishment is based on anger and revenge, which helps no one. So one of the common arguments by retentionists is why would you commit a violent act to punish a violent act? Assuming that the acts you would reserve a capital punishment verdict for are violent acts of some sort. Another argument, capital punishment may be applied inequitably, meaning, or maybe asking the question, for what crimes do you apply it and for what crimes don't you? So back to our chart, this is a good example of this. In every category, there was at least one person that felt capital punishment was applicable. But if, if you represent, even in part, society as a whole, look at this spread. I mean, 
how do you how how does a judicial system decide in this situation whether it's capital punishment or counseling with parole when we have such diversified opinions on it how 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 do you equitably apply this punishment to so many different scenarios so let's let's just take this column in this column we have at least one person in every scenario that says capital punishment is is necessary um so if one person in each of those categories says that capital punishment is necessary and we go with that option, how many of these people are put to death? Five. But then might, one might ask the question, if we put them all to death, is the guy who rapes his daughter and strangles his three kids as depraved in his action as the drunk girl that runs over two people and kills them? just raises the question. So in every other form of punishment, you potentially have a gradation of punishments, but this is sort of the final one. And in a sense, one might argue then, well, the, the guy that did the really heinous act, maybe he didn't get enough. And maybe the girl that whose actions weren't quite so heinous got a little too, too much. But it's death. You can't half kill somebody. They're either dead or they're not. So it's just a question that a, an abolitionist would raise. Uh, another one would simply be, well, the law of the land may forbid it. So this is how a lot of Christians respond. Why would a Canadian Christian even bother having this conversation when the law has already made a decision on it? Well, we could also ask that question of abortion. We could ask that question of any law that we may not appreciate or lack of laws. So the, the point being is that for many, it's not something they think about or talk about because it's a theoretical question. Another argument is capital punishment. This is more from the Christian perspective, if you're an abolitionist. Removes all possibility for further evangelization. So maybe if we kept the person alive a little longer, there would be an opportunity to expose them to the gospel. Yeah, well, you know, that's a that's sort of a definitely a question that spins off that question, the whole uh, you know jailhouse conversion. I mean, there's, yeah, I mean, I guess in that situation one might ask about the legitimacy of it, but setting that aside, many abolitionists would just say, I I couldn't bring myself to taking someone's life. I'd I'd rather lock them up because at least then there's an op a potential opportunity for them to become a believer. That's the argument. Sure. Yeah. And again, if you were, if you, if you're more of the theological persuasion that in the absolute sovereignty of God, He's not going to lose anybody, that He would intend to come to know Him, then it's a moot point for you. If, on the other hand, you hold the the perception that there's more of a synergistic act between God and man, um, then you would probably have a little more ammo or a little more concern on the other side of the coin. Yep, Joe? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the sense that, I, yeah, God is everywhere, but I mean, Susie and Susan go to the Windsor, yeah. Windsor Jail every week and 
Susie just said to our life group the other day, when you go to the Windsor Southwest Attention Center, I mean, you, you, it's either one way or the other that day. You know, you feel like you're really on the devil's turf or you feel like the spirit is really moving. Um, and that kind of makes sense. I mean, if you were the devil, why wouldn't you hang, around, hang out around a jail, right? People that, whose lives are broken and who've done some terrible things and certainly a great place to discourage and tear people down further, I would think. So it is, it is a question to be asked. Um, when Cain killed his brother, God didn't put him to death. When King David had Uriah killed on the battlefield, God didn't put him to death. So some proponents of abolishing capital punishment would point to situations in the Bible where clearly a murderer, we would call that murder in both situations, weren't put to death directly by God, and they were having conversations of some sort with God, Abolitionists would use that. Well, not exactly. The cities of refuge, which were geographically scattered throughout Israel, so you could always get to one in a 24-hour 24-hour run, they were not ever to be used for murder. They were to be used for what we would call manslaughter or unintentional killing, and that's all they could be used for. So if you're swinging the axe and you didn't sharpen or you didn't make sure the head was fast and it hits somebody in the head and kills them so that their relative doesn't take your life, you could flee to the city of refuge. But you couldn't flee there if you just started axing someone to death, no. So a city of refuge was reserved for unintentional killing and unintentional killing only. Okay. The ethics of Jesus, they would say, cannot be reconciled with capital punishment because it lacks mercy, it lacks a restorative quality, and it is a failure to turn the other cheek. We spent some time in the other cheek passage last week, and I think, I hope you were convinced that that passage is often misunderstood, but for the sake of this outline, that would be a passage they would want to refer to. And then, this is a big one. Uh, there's no way to determine when, should, when it should be put into effect. Did you know that in 1814, in England, three boys aged 8 to 11 were hanged for stealing shoes? So evidently, the authorities at the time felt that was an appropriate situation that would give rise to capital punishment for kids that didn't even qualify for our junior high ministry yet. So it begs the question, when does it apply, when doesn't it apply? Now I'll just say, in actual fact, that's true of any punishment even if the punishment is stop doing it. It's true of any punishment. How do you apply appropriate punishment to any action? Another argument is that, this is the second from last, capital punishment is based on Old Testament law and therefore is not prescribed for our time. So the whole differentiation between what's descriptive and what's prescriptive 
I mean, we, we would all, I think, agree that not everything that's described in the Bible is prescribed necessarily. Um, unless it's based somehow on the moral character of God or it is a new covenant law. And the final argument, I think, is, is it's just a, I think it's a fascinating argument. It, in some ways, it's a strange argument. But, um, and I've never actually had someone personally give this one to me, but I, I, it, it's certainly one that's out there, and that is that Christ became our capital punishment, therefore it's no longer needed. So did Christ die for our sins, they would argue? Yes. How, how specifically did he die? He actually died by capital punishment. And so if by dying for capital punishment, he's the once-for-all sin-bearer, abolitionists would argue that the, the, the nature of Jesus' death, he wasn't killed by a thief on a road, on the road to Jericho. He didn't die of uh, cancer. Uh, you know, someone didn't shoot an arrow at him. He died by capital punishment. And so abolitionists would argue that the very nature of Jesus, the very mode of Jesus' death, which is sort of on the far end of the chart with torture added, suggests that there should be, there should never be a greater penalty applied for any human sin or it's a misunderstanding of the gospel. It's an interesting argument, isn't it? Yeah, it's something to think about. So, Again, um, we're going through the basic, just logical arguments that abolitionists give. Now let's look at the arguments that the retentionists give, and then we'll go to several scripture passages and, and try to uh, weigh these arguments against the word of God. Argument number one. And this is the big one. The biblical principle of justice demands it. So you need to describe that a little bit. Probably a dominant, if not the dominant theme that the prophets poked at the rebellious people of Israel for on a social level was justice. More than divorce, um, more than um, any specific crime, they constantly were hammering away at the people about matters of justice. And it would seem that the way they understood justice was that uh, God ultimately punishes humanity's sin for their sin, b even beyond um, the sin itself. And it seems that the New Testament writers believe that as well because eternal damnation so we're talking about infinite damnation for a finite life of crime. Clearly the penalty is in some senses greater than the crime. So if you believe in an, an eternal conscious torment, which our church teaches, and it's eternal, have you ever thought about the fact that even if you're an absolute tyrant, a tyrant, a murderer, a rapist, a thief, an adulterer, for 70 straight years, 
from beginning to end. How do you, if, if it's kind of just tit for tat, how do you give eternal, like forever, damnation, infinite damnation for a finite life of crime and sin? Well, um, it's an emotional question, but the biblical answer is that sin offends the very character of God. And when the eternal holiness of God is offended, eternal separation from him is the due reward, which is the ultimate punishment. So the biblical concept of justice goes beyond even, well, you took a life, you need to have your life taken. It goes beyond that. There are lesser things that one deserves death for. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have gone to the cross and experienced capital punishment for your sin. So this, the, the concept of justice is tied less to, uh, okay, if this is the crime, sort of the suitable punishment, oh, this one's too big, this one's too small, okay, this one looks about right. Now, the concept of justice is you've offended an infinitely holy God, and therefore you will eventually die for it. Another argument by the retentionists, and this is where there's sort of an argument back and forth, is they would say, well, it does, it does deter crime. And they would pull their statistics, and the abolitionists would pull their statistics, and they would say it does deter crime. It clearly deters the criminal. And this is actually one of, a pretty strong social argument by a retentionist, because if you, can, if you can point even to, let's say, 10 cases out of 1,000 where... A person, let's say, one, two, four, or five, gets one of these, and by the way, life in Canada is 25, right? Then, and even if 10 out of 1,000 then get out and kill one more, you could ask the question, who's to blame for that? Who's to blame for that? Because if you'd taken that person's life, you would have saved one life. So the fact that murderers or rapists at times reoffend, and the statistics aren't particularly low from what I understand, does ask the question about hum societal responsibility to protect the innocent from a person known to have committed certain kinds of heinous criminal activity. So I would say it does deter crime. Yeah, could have. We could add several others, but yeah, that, that would be one. Um, well, life, even life without parole in Canada is still 25 years. It would have to be multiple life sentences or something beyond that. Or you're, I think they call it a dangerous offender, if that's the language, where you could potentially be locked up forever. But life without parole simply means you've got to do the full 25 instead of, well, after 17, you might be able to get out early. Okay, here's another argument by a retentionist. So the, the second one was it deters crime. The third one is the issue of deterrence is irrelevant. It's not, irrelevant, it's not relevant to the conversation. So many retentionists would say, whether it deters or not, that's not relevant. You have committed a particular act, and the appropriate consequence is capital punishment. That's what we need to focus on, not, well, what are the repercussions of this? Will it or will it not deter crime in the future? Another argument would be that transcultural biblical law commands it, and 
you might say, well, where is that biblical law found? We're actually going to look at that later tonight. It's tied to God's declarations after Noah and his son stepped off the ark. So we'll go to that. But they would point to that law and say, there's a law in the Bible that goes beyond Israel. It doesn't even apply to Israel. Israel didn't even exist when the law was given. It has nothing to do with the church. It just has to do with humanity. And they would argue that that passage mandates capital punishment for the taking of another person's life for all times from the Noahic flood onward. Transcultural, sorry. Yeah, I might have said continental. Okay. Yeah, Tran transcultural. Uh, another argument would be, okay, if you say, well, we're not under the law, okay, fine, but the Mosaic law illustrates it, and therefore you can't say it's inherently inherently wrong. Even by abolitionists. So one could potentially argue then that the Mos if it's in the Mosaic law, but it's not in the New Testament, then it is part of the Mosaic code and therefore not applicable, at least for the church. But then the retentious would say, if you go a step further and say it's wrong, okay, what do you mean by wrong? If you mean morally wrong, you can't take something that God says is morally right in the Mosaic law and say it's morally wrong. You can only say it's dispensationally wrong, meaning that in that dispensation or era, that's what God wanted, but he doesn't necessarily want it today. But you can't say it's morally wrong if God ever in human history said it's morally right. By the way, this is, a, this is a, an important thing for us to think about whenever we're using or thinking about laws in the scripture, Old Testament versus New. We have to be careful with our language that we don't look at the laws that God put down in the Old Covenant and ever say they're wrong. Because then you're saying God, God made a, you know, declared a, something that's immoral, moral, of course. He would never do that. But you could argue that one, a particular law or set of laws, or the whole law doesn't apply based upon what we call dispensational considerations, meaning we're living in a different age, in a new covenant age, and through se taking into consideration several factors, including the words of Christ himself, those have been set aside. You could argue that way, but you can't actually say it's morally wrong. Now, not to get off onto a bunny trail, but... This is then going to automatically, for the thinking person, raise questions about slavery. So now, okay, well, actually, God said that slavery was okay then. I think we all think it's wrong now, so how do we reconcile that? Well, God actually didn't say it was okay. He never says it's okay. But a certain aspect of the Mosaic Law is what we are what we call laws of accommodation where God accommodates and puts checks and balances on certain cultural notions, and then over the course of Scripture begins to either loosen or tighten them to the point that you get into the New Testament and you have you know, the whole Philemon Onesimus thing, whereby um, you know, there seems to be strong indication this, this should probably come to an end. But then you got another factor in there, and that is your notion of slavery itself 
for most North Americans, we automatically think of Civil War era slavery. And you need to understand that while there was that in ancient cultures, that the word slave was a much broader term that could also refer to an indentured servant, someone that you know, racked up their proverbial credit card and couldn't pay it off. There's no such thing as bankruptcy. So a person who's indebted to somebody and has to agree to basically work for them for free for the rest of their life or years to pay off debt. I mean, there's several other aspects to slavery that aren't totally equivalent to what we're seeing in the Civil War era. Okay, so just sort of throwing all that out there, a lot to think about. But um, the point I really want you to be mulling over is that you can't say something's morally wrong that God said was morally right at any point in history. Or you're gonna, you have a problem with your theology of God. Another argument is that the financial cost to society for imprisoning a person guilty of heinous crime is absurd, cons- absurd considering the destruction to society. I don't know what the, like, the latest and the greatest statistics are on what it costs the government to incarcerate someone, but years ago I heard it was $80,000. I'm, I'm imagining it's probably a whole lot more than that. So even if you take, like, let's say, the Southwest Detention Center, you add up the cost of the facility. Let's say it's going to get, we're going to get 75 years out of it. You add up um, the cost of running it. You add up the cost of all the staff, all the government offices above that would be administering it, roadways. I mean, it, it's, it's certainly not, it's it's not cheap. We know that. So some abolitionists would say it's just simply not fair for someone, or sorry, retentionists, it's not fair for someone who's taken a life to go to jail for 25 years, especially if you never have a, or life, especially if you have no plan of ever releasing them. Like you're, you're not correct, and you're, you're locking them away literally for life. Well, what's the point of doing that at, let's just pull the number, $100,000 a year times the next 50 years? When the person has taken someone's life, and you know, there's just a question that comes up. It's just not cost-effective, I guess. It sounds kind of cold and callous, but it's a, it's something to think about. Another argument is that Christ abolished the ceremonial aspects of Mosaic law, but not the moral or civil dimensions, as illustrated in the Ten Commandments. Um, and the way that would work is, we'll talk about this a little bit more, but the commandment that we often quote as thou shalt not kill, that's not actually the commandment. There's no, there's no commandment in the Bible that says thou shalt not kill. There's a commandment in the Bible that says thou shalt not murder. And if your translation translates it as kill, it's a mistranslation. Because there's between four and seven uh, Hebrew words in the Hebrew language that refer to the spectrum of taking another human being's life. And they're sort of the, the equivalent in our language of manslaughter, first degree murder, second degree murder, killing in war, capital punishment. And the commandment relates specifically to the intentional or ignorant taking of a person's life unjustly. That's what that word actually means. And it, it, it doesn't actually refer to just broadly speaking, taking anyone's life. 
And that kind of makes sense because we do all know, I hope we all know, that there are other situations in the Levitical law where you are told to take a murderer's life. It's a different word. I think the word is harag, if I remember correctly, and this word, H-A-R-A-G, refers to murder. So if someone says, thou shalt not kill, no, no, it's thou shalt not murder. So the argument then goes for the retentionists is that the Bible never forbids killing. It forbids murder. And killing and murder are defined using different dimensions, dynamics, different scenarios. So when David, for instance, took his sling and killed Goliath, he's killing him, he's not murdering him. The word wouldn't be murder, it'd be kill. Or if somebody did chop someone else's head off in rage, you would kill that person, you're not murdering them. But we use that word almost like it's the same, right? To the point that, I mean, you even have people now using the word murder in relationship to slaughtering an animal. It's not murder. You, even if you're a vegan, it's not murder, sorry. It, does, it doesn't apply. So we need to be careful with the language we use. Another one argument, so back to Cain. How come Cain got away with it? If God's pro-capital punishment, why not wipe Cain out right away? I mean, God's there, right? He could have done it. So they would say that because Cain is pre-Noahic, so Noahic is from the word Noah. It just refers to that era. Because Cain is pre-Noahic, and in fact, listen to this interesting logic, he's the first cause for the law, it's irrelevant to have a law before that. The progress of revelation is not complete. It doesn't apply. Secondly, Cain existed before government existed. And for him to actually have experienced capital punishment, which wouldn't quite be the same as if God just took him. Well, who, who would have been responsible for that? Mom and dad? Yeah, right. It wouldn't have been a reasonable request to put on parents. And in addition to that, the, the more transcultural law was given after the Noahic flood. I think I misspoke last week and I suggested it was before, but it was actually after. Um, another argument would be, well, David should have been killed. David should have, according to God's law, been subject to capital punishment. But since government, by definition, enacts it, he would have had to enacted it upon himself because they didn't have courts in Israel like that. It would have been him saying, yep, I hereby declare myself guilty of death. And that's why, yeah, he did get away with it. But there's, there's an explanation why, and it doesn't validate or invalidate capital punishment. It just explains that quote-unquote exception. The next argument, everybody dies someday, and the knowledge of imminent capital punishment has the potential to position a criminal to accept Christ sooner than a person sentenced to an extended prison time. So just as the, on one hand, one group might say, well, if you take someone's life, um, then uh, you're ripping them off of the chance to accept Christ. The capital punishment folks might say, well, actually, no. If you give a person a date and a calendar that's one year from now, there's a lot of pressure to think about the issues rather than saying, ah, you got 25 more years to think about it. 
I know these are pragmatic reflections, but uh, something to think about. Another argument is that botched execution should not affect principle, but inform better practice. So yes, you will have errors of judgment in this issue and in all issues, but the exception shouldn't change the rule, but simply should inform better practice. It's like saying to an army, you know what, you went into such and such a country to rid the country of a tyrannical leader, you killed 100,000 terrible men, oops, you killed one innocent, we should never have any more battles anymore, next time it happens we just let them do whatever they want. So the, the argument is, yeah, you're going to mess up sometimes, but that should not inform the principle, it should just maybe inform the practice a little bit better. How do you stop that in the future? And by the way, most proponents of capital punishment would recognize that you only apply it to slam dunk cases. You don't apply it to cases where the evidence is just one eyewitness or, um, at least in our cultures, or circumstantial evidence. You, you, you apply it minimally to people who are caught in the act of pickling guys in their basement, like whatever his name was, Ted Bundy. You know, people that you know, you're having the, you're having the trial, but you know from the very beginning he did it. You know, innocent until proven guilty, right? But that relates more to the penalty because certain people are caught in the act and everybody like on the planet knows it. And you're just kind of going through the process to more or less determine, and even the defense attorney kind of knows it, and he's trying to come up with reasons maybe to explain it, but he's not denying the act. So those kind of situations, retentionists would say, well, those are, those are clearly for capital punishment. But yeah, you don't necessarily put it into practice for someone who, whose thumbprint was found on a body. I mean, there could be other explanations for that. Yeah, although even, there are still some cases where DNA might be present in a crime scene, but it doesn't necessarily prove the person committed that act. There's other, so some guy has sex with a woman, she walks home from his house, and she gets killed. Well, his semen's in her. They check her and say, well, clearly he did it. Well, no, not necessarily, right? So DNA still has to be, in certain situations, interpreted in light of the circumstances. And most retentionists would say that, again, you reserve it for cases where there's, for lack of a better way of putting it, 100% certainty. You know, a person caught in the act, for instance. A few more arguments, and then we'll, um, we'll uh, stop for some prayer and a break. Life sentences undermine rehabilitation, too. And therefore, life sentences are a moot point. So some would say, look, the rehabilitation in a jail, really? I mean, you're going to get about this much. But if you really are in the business of correcting people and rehabilitating them, don't ever send them to jail. Everybody should have checked this category off. This is where we're going to spend all of our time and energy. So it's a valid thought. 
Another point, rehabilitation and justice are not the same. They're two totally different categories. One doesn't exclude the other, necessarily. The command not to murder is dissimilar from capital punishment, so we already looked at that. More specifically, the command uh, uh, not to murder is in a, in a different category than capital punishment because the place we're getting that from, which is Old Testament, has both and doesn't see them as irreconcilable. So when someone says, especially if a Christian were to say or to argue, well, we shouldn't ever subject someone to capital punishment because God says thou shalt not murder. Well, clearly they've only read a very small slice of the Old Testament. It's, it's not a valid argument. Capital punishment is barbaric, retentionists would suggest, but reflects the nature of the trespass. In fact, some retentionists believe that the way we put people to death uh, today by capital punishment is more for political correctness, but it's not actually the proper way to do it. That it should be more violent because of the violent nature of the crime. So, you know, bring back the firing squad, the noose, the electric chair, but the whole needle thing doesn't accurately reflect the nature of the crime. Another argument, Jesus did not abolish capital punishment, but in the Matthew text, he abolished, or didn't abolish, he reinforced ancient laws not to seek personal vengeance. And that that's how we are to understand going the extra mile, slapping of the cheek, and so forth. That the redemptive work of Christ in salvation is itself based on the underlying concepts of capital punishment. So now we have the same argument, or the same concept used by the abolitionists, used by the retentionists, and that is that if the ultimate punishment that Christ endured for all sin is capital punishment, then one could argue that in fact, in fact, while these aren't mandated in the Levitical law, even the theft of a chocolate bar would in, in a moral sense make you a worthy candidate for capital punishment. Because the penalty of sin, all sin, is what? Death in a salvific sense. So if you feel comfortable preaching to someone, even if you never murder, rape, steal, um, torture, according to God, you're still guilty and the due penalty of your sin is death, then how can you at the same time say, well, under no circumstances, including for a serial killer, is that person uh, a candidate for death? It doesn't make sense to speak out of both sides of your mouth like that. Finally, they would argue that love does not preclude justice in society any more than one precludes the other in the character of God. God can both love, restore, correct, if you will, punish, and take life and still be a consistent God. So retentionists would argue that a society can at times correct, at times punish mildly, at times punish harshly, at times take another person's life, and maintain a sense of justice all at once because God actually does that. So, we're going to uh, stop there for a little bit.
and then when we come back, we're going to look at some key biblical passages. We probably won't get through them all tonight, but we'll get through several. Uh, down this side of your tables, and for those of you at the back on each round table, there's a, a sheet of paper. Um, we're just going to take a few moments to pray together. Uh, again, you can pray individually or pray in groups or pairs. And this is um, a copy of the prayer email that goes out every week. If you don't receive this, you should probably contact our office and go on the list. But just several things that you can be praying for. And um, some upcoming dates for prayer meetings. Also, for those of you that may not be aware, in this room, every Sunday between the services, just for about 15 minutes, there's a prayer group. So you're always welcome just to come down. You don't have to sign up for it or anything. You can do that. So just let's take a few minutes to pray, and then when I flash the lights, we'll um, head for the snack table, and then when I flash them again, we'll come back and get into the second part of our lecture tonight. Well, why don't we just have you grab some stuff and come back to your seat, and then we'll, we'll get going again, because we only have about a half an hour or so left before the junior highs invade the church. Did you tell Sam we, uh, David, David, did you tell Sam we saw his theological brother on that video? Did you tell him about that? I told Michelle. So we're watching this video as a life group, and they're interviewing scholars from all over the world. There's a guy named Craig Evans that teaches at Acadia Divinity School in Nova Scotia, and his mannerisms, and his, he, he could be your brother. I'm like, oh, this, every time he talks, I'm like, oh, this is Sam. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so as, uh, as we come back to this issue, and thank you, by the way, for spending that time in prayer. It's important. As we come back to this issue, just wanted to give a couple minutes. Would anybody like to share, especially if you picked a... I flipped the board around now, but if you've picked an option that most people didn't pick, why you decided to pick that option? So we'll start with sort of the, the anomalies. If you picked an option that most people didn't pick, kind of a minority viewpoint, why did you, why did you do that? What was your rationale? No, with regard to the five scenarios. So the five scenarios, the different murderers, for lack of a better way of putting it, if you were sort of on one side or the other, most people are in the middle, what caused you to pick the scenario you picked? Maybe just remind the class of what you picked and what the scenario was. decision to drink and drive was ignorant, but like their intentions were not straight up going to kill people. So. Okay. So I think there's kind of obviously what happened is terrible, but like I think there's a way to be compassionately towards and help with her make better decisions in the future. Okay. Whereas all the other ones were just like evil thinking, evil <coughs> actions, whereas hers was an ignorant decision. 
showing us this season. I think people are more uh, respond to it emotionally because there's a senior and a child that was involved as well. Okay. So, so I don't know. And, and Just a sec. Joyce is taking issue <laughs> with you referring to a 59-year-old as a senior. <laughs> And unless you want your head cut off <laughs> by the end of class. <laughs> okay, well, how about he'll, he'll use se- senior in the modern sense of you get a reduction of price in your coffee. And you're like 55, right? 50, 50, 55. Yeah, <laughs> freedom 55. Okay, anyway, go ahead. Okay. Okay, did you all hear him? Now, this is very interesting, and I want you to hear my analysis of Jordan. Um, <laughs> because many of you will be able to relate to this, and some of you won't. No, no, just, just an observation. Jordan, basic, this is what I heard Jordan say. I'm more interested in judging the intention than the consequence. Now, just think about that for a minute. Because in many of these scenarios, even in modern law, there is a lot of weight put on motive and intention. In other countries, they don't care what your intention is. We're not going to spend time psychoanalyzing you. This is what you did this is what happens. This is what you did. This is what happens. This is what you did. This is what happens. We still do that for municipal law, by the way. You speed this much, this is the fine. You speed this much, this is the fine. You speed this much, this is the fine. It's a list. But interestingly, and and many people would feel quite comfortable with that, Jordan. They'd say, I don't care what the intention was. At the end of the day, two people are in the grave because of your choices. You were warned not to do it. You chose to do it. You made a decision to do it. You made a decision to take the alcohol into your body. If as a result of your actions, two people are dead, really at the end of the day, how is that different than someone that takes a gun and goes and says, I'm gonna go kill two people tonight. At the end of the day, two people are dead, right? So just something for us to think about not to disagree with Jordan, right? Just to analyze him a little bit, because I don't—I know he doesn't mind that. His wife's going into psychotherapy, right? So, um, yeah, he gets enough of that at home. So, um, you better get used to it, right? So, um, intention—where does that come into play? And the end result, the consequence, meaning the consequence of your actions—what were they? How does that come into play? So, there's other people I know in the room would say, "I don't care what your intentions were at all." If two people are dead, you die. End of story. I think they'd be all over the map, right? I mean, some people would recognize maybe... um, Yeah, yeah.
because that's such an extreme example, we might all automatically conclude, how could you how could you not be mentally insane and therefore somewhat unresponsible if you were to do something on that scale? Well, it's a great question because I've never thought about doing that. I don't know what goes on in a person's head. We do, we do know that there are people on more of a national level who quite, quite enjoy killing other people, and it'd be hard to call them insane. Back to our illustration last week, Genghis Khan seemed to get a kick out of it. It worked to his political advantage. It um, made people afraid of him. You hear stories of uh, even you know young, whether it's American, British, Canadian, whoever, soldiers that go to war, and they kind of like shooting people. Um, it's not that they're necessarily doing it just because they have to. They kind of like doing it. So, yeah, I mean, you you sort of automatically assume if someone's going to go be a serial killer, they must be a nut bar. They're obviously evil. I mean, let's all let's let's agree to this. It's a greater expression of your depravity to kill and pickle 22 people than to pull a gun out and shoot a security guard on your way out the door at work. I mean, I don't think anybody's going to argue against that. But I think a, a retentionist might just, uh, some retentionist might just say, again, motives are relevant. I mean, you, you punish the, the end result of the person's actions. Uh, or, you know, if they're that insane, it sounds callous. What's the point of keeping them around anyway? Could be several, several reasons. A child murderer? A child murderer? Again, I think it would, I think it would depend on, yeah. I think it would depend too on, um, you know, how that all came about. I mean, you do hear of some younger children doing some things that seem quite intentional and pretty evil. And others are just screwing around with a gun or something that goes off. Yeah. Well, there's definitely variance of intent in terms of um, Levitical law. What's interesting, though, about the cities of refuge is if you didn't get there and you got killed by the kinsmen, oh well. They're not, they're not going to court for it. So that's an interesting thing, too, right? In that the, the families were actually permitted the ability to avenge the unintentional death of a loved one, you had the option of finding safety in a city of refuge, but if you didn't get there and they got to you before that, if the lynch mob, mob showed up before you could get there, oh well. Somebody probably out there should name a jail that. But. <laughs> Certain amount of merit or, or on that, in 
understanding that people would want that. Yeah. Although I, I don't think we can do enough argument for call for, for capital punishment. I had the uh, unfortunate opportunity to be called as a, as a character witness in a murder trial. Hmm. Wow. And uh, it was a fellow that I knew, and he had killed his wife. Like I knew that we were not going to have to deal with capital punishment. I, I think, like secretly inside, I was very, very glad that we were not going to have to wrestle with that, or yeah. that wasn't going to come into play. Because uh, I, I think, it, it, as ugly and as difficult as all of the or a lot of these scenarios are, it's you know when you're sitting across from someone, it's. Uh, it's quite a step. Yep. It's quite a step to go from life imprisonment to, yep. to oh yeah. committing, you know, raising your hand in favor of, oh yeah. of capital punishment. For sure. Just to the one point you were sort of getting to, and that is that um, some retentionists would argue that it's a greater, it's a greater v victimization on the family to keep the person on earth. That just an, so let's just use the one extreme example, the the guy that rapes his 10-year-old in front of his wife and strangles his three kids. What would be more healing for her? To know he's still out there, even if it's in jail for life, or to know that he's gone? Um, I'm guessing for him to be gone would be more healing and more give her a greater sense of peace. And, and, and yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting point too, I guess, is that sometimes yeah, capital capital <laughs> punishment yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially when you feel that children are responsible. Yeah. Yeah, you hear, definitely I mean Dalmer was killed in jail, right? Even even after he professed to be a Christian. I don't know if it was legitimate or not. But yeah. My sister is a corrections officer, but she's um She's in London. She would be more like in a Southwest Detention Center context a couple years. Okay, anybody else want to share just kind of why they said what they said? Yep, Bob? <coughs> okay. In the jail, you mean? Yeah, okay. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. 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 Hmm. 
yeah, that's 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 a very good argument. Uh, yeah. And they what, sorry? Christ, Christ transformed. transformed mm. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. So why not give them the opportunity? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay, good. Anyone else? In Christ, uh, uh, a person was had legions in, the, in his body, and Christ uh, told the legions to get out of his body. Yeah, I was just waiting for the question. Well, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but, but it was there in the past. Are you trying to are you just pointing out the issue of condemnation or No, but not quite sure where you're going with it, but Yeah, yeah, yeah. They fear for their lives and not for them. Yeah. And Christ um, says, okay, if these four, 40 legions get out of his body or something like that, and he was healed, he was, uh, hey, I'm going to go visit my mom and say, I'm, I'm healed. Mm. But is that the same with God that are doing that to a person born in jail? Um, he's using the children? And, uh, well, I think both sides would recognize that God God can heal anybody. But we don't make our decisions necessarily when it comes to law based upon what God may or may not do. We try to wrestle through these issues based upon the fact that we all view ourselves on some level as redemptive agents, agents of justice, that God uses humanity to put into practice his just laws or guard his just laws, however you want to put it. And so issues of forgiveness and healing, yeah, we concern ourselves with those, but that's almost like God's job description. The, the question of capital punishment is, is really asking the question, what's our job description, God, in relationship to murderers? What do you want us to do with them? And that's where we got to try to sort out what do we do as a society with Murderers. So let's look at a few passages. The first one we won't look up because we've looked it up so many times. Let us comment on it. Exodus 20. Does anybody know what's in Exodus 20? You should. Ten Commandments. The passage in context, here it is, is given to Israel. The command is not to murder intentionally. The word here is used 49 times in the Old Testament always in relationship to premeditated murder. Different words are employed for killing, unintentional murder, and killing through what we would call capital punishment. Those are different words. So, thinking of some interpretive slash dispensational issues like old versus new testament, we know murder is still wrong. Matthew 5.21 
But one can't use that commandment to preclude capital punishment because the commandment doesn't relate to capital punishment. In Matthew 5, Jesus does parallel murder with hatred. Basically, you hate someone, it's like murdering them, you murder, it's like hatred. You know, he's kind of paralleling them. But he's not downplaying either. And by the way, we have to be careful, very careful, when, when Jesus sort of challenges people and says, oh, you're pointing out this, like let's say a big class one sin, but what about this? He's not necessarily saying they're both literally equal. So if you look at a woman lustfully, it's like committing adultery. Well, it, why is he saying that? Because he doesn't want us to get ourselves into the habit of sort of dismissing the lesser sins and just focusing on the Ten Commandments. But in the, lit, in the most literal sense, he's not saying if you look at a woman lustfully, oh, you, that's the exact same as if you've gone and shacked up with someone and went to, went to bed with them and had sexual intercourse. And you intuitively know that because if you're a married person and your spouse came to you and said, I got to confess something, I looked at another man or woman lustfully, of course you're going to have a reaction. But you're going to have a very different reaction if you said, you know, I just, I just had sex with someone who's not, and it's not you. Um, that's going to be a very different, different scenario. So what Jesus talks about hatred is like murder, murder is like hatred. He's not then saying, oh, well, what do we do with someone who hates somebody? Well, we tell them that's a bad idea. What do we do with someone who murders someone? Well, we tell them that's a bad idea. That's not the purpose of the text, I would argue. If you'd like to argue otherwise, you're welcome to do so. So does this passage then, this is, I'm sort of dividing these up into categories. I'm looking at the passage, quick little interpretation of the context, thinking about some interpretive or dis dispensational issues. And then how does this passage impact our view of capital punishment? Well, I'm just going to say this, it doesn't. Uh, in the sense that one cannot use Exodus 20 to speak against capital punishment. And, of course, why would you use it for? Because it's not relevant to that. So if this were a command against capital punishment, you would think that the following chapters would contradict it because the following chapters start to put capital punishment laws down, at least for Israel. So now we have a whole slew of passages here. So all the stuff I've written from Exodus 21 uh, right down to the Deuteronomy text. Why don't we just kind of select a few of these? So just pick one and... Read it out loud for the rest of us. And all of these relate to different situations within which capital punishment is prescribed for a particular sin. So just shout out the reference and just kind of go around the room quick and have some of you read these out. Okay, did you all hear that? You're a witch, you're dead.
Okay, so there's bestiality in there, you're dead. Adultery, you're dead. By the way, if you've ever wondered why um, Ham was banished when he went in and uncovered his father's nakedness, that text probably explains it. It's probably because he went in and had an incestuous relationship with his mother. It's not he walked in, oh, dad's naked, ha, 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 let's tell a joke about it. Oh, you're sent off. Probably what's going on with the son of Noah is that he went in and had sex with his mom. And his dad was drunk. And as a result of that, he was condemned. Because it's the same language. He uncovered, if you have sex with your father's wife, you've uncovered his nakedness. See? So. Okay, others. Yep, Sam. Okay. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place, and he says, Let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow, and him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him, serve him, and hold fast to him. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death, because he preached rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. Mm. He has tried to turn you from the way of the Lord your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. If your very own brother or your son or daughter or the wife you love or your closest friend secretly entices you saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods that neither you nor your fathers have known, gods of the peoples around you, whether near or far, from one end of the land to the other, do not yield to him or listen to him. Show him no pity. Do not spare him or shield him. You must certainly put him to death. Your hand must be the first in putting him to death, and then the hands of all the people. Stone him to death because he tried to turn you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid, and no one among you will do such an evil thing again. If you hear it said about one of the towns the Lord your God has given you to live in, that wicked men have arisen among you, have led the people of their town astray, saying, Let us go and worship other gods, gods you have not known. Then you must inquire, probe, and investigate it thoroughly. And if it is true, and it has been proved that this detestable thing has been done among you, you must certainly put to the sword all who live in that town. Destroy it completely, both its people and its livestock. Okay. So bad preaching. There's a lot there, isn't there? Now, so here's, here's what we have. Murder, kidnapping, the death of a pregnant woman, death of an unborn baby, neglect of a dangerous animal leading to the death of a human, rape, blasphemy, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, 
fornication, incest, striking your parents, sorcery, idolatry or inciting idolatry, or avenging a death acquitted by law or false testimony. So those, not just in that passage, but I'm just summarizing. That's what all those passages point to. How do you know if someone did it? Well, here's the check, the balance. Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not suffice against any person for a crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only in the evidence of two witnesses or of three shall a charge be established. Then there's this warning. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days, and the judges shall inquire diligently. And if the, if the witness is a false witness and is, has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. By the way, this is the, this is the specific application of the false witness law in the Ten Commandments. It's not just lying in general. It's perjuring yourself in court. Because if you, if you throw that one out, the whole judicial system collapses. Because it's based largely on eyewitness testimony. So they wanted to really keep this one central, right? You can't, you can't lie in court. So there's a lot of things there. So um, Now, some interpretive issues. These are given to a theocratic state. This is a state, God is the ruler, the whole nation agrees this is our God, so it's theocratic, it's not democratic. And therefore, it's not directly attributable. That's a different word than applicable. It's not directly attributable to all contexts. Second point, circumstantial evidence was insufficient. Uh, third idea, the question is not one of interpretation, because we know what it says. It's not like, well, what does that mean? We know what it says. It's not about interpretation. It's about application. How do we apply it? That's what the question is. So again, you can't say God never said that. Yeah, he did say it. It's pretty clear. It's unambiguous. The question is one of application to our context. So are there examples of the application of these laws outside of the Old Testament covenant community? You've got to think about that. Society recognizes these kinds of laws in other situations. Therefore, there is no reason for a complete break from all things mosaic. The point being is, some of the mosaic law is still the foundation of modern Western, even Canadian law. Whether jurists would admit that or not. Well, that's the question. Yeah, so that's the question, right? I'm just asking the question. So the point being is that it really no, even a secular Canadian is on thin ice if, if they were to say, that's just Old Testament or that's just Mosaic because some of the Mosaic law we've directly imported into our context. So again, the question is, all, some, part, and what are some other scripture passages or concepts that will help us to sort through all that? We all came from uh, Noah. We touched on Noah. Mm -hmm. I think there were seven in there. But included in that was Abraham, Lot, Moses. Right. Yeah. So it's applicable to all humans. Yeah. 
Yeah. So uh, we can actually just jump back there, and it's a little further down my list, but um, let's go back to Genesis. We'll go to Genesis 9. Because this one's come up a few times, so I don't mind jumping ahead and kind of bringing it up now. So Genesis 9. Uh, five, five to six. Oh, we can even read seven. In fact, if you just read, if you, if you read the first part of verse nine, there's nothing really in there that sounds irrelevant to our culture and context. It, it sounds transcultural. So look at some of this stuff. Well, let's go back to the beginning. And God blessed Noah and his sons. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Well, people not only still quote that verbatim today, but we've been practicing it pretty good for the last several thousand years. The fear of you, the dread of you, shall be on every beast of the earth, every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps in the ground, all the fish of the sea. Well, that, that's still true. Into your hands they are delivered. There's exceptions to the rule, but all human cultures accept that. There, there's some sort of supremacy of humanity over plant life and animal life where we wouldn't be eating it. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So by the way, up to this point, we're talking probably vegetarianism, but now they can eat meat. Every living thing that lives shall be food for you. Uh, sorry, verse 4. But you shall not eat flesh with its, with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. Okay, then this. From this fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. You might say, if it just stopped there, all he's saying is, well, that's going to be the inevitable consequence. If you shed someone's life, just watch out, someone's going to take yours. That's not the argument. The argument is it's right because for God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase on the earth and multiply in it. So this is pre-Mosaic. Well, it's in the Old Testament. Okay, don't, don't be so simple. What do you mean by that? If you mean it's Old Testament law, no, it's not. It's transcultural law. It's pre-Mosaic. There is nobody but no one his sons and daughter-in-laws and wife at this point. And he makes this overarching statement. I mean, it goes on. There's other overarching statements. Verse 11, I'm going to establish my covenant. I'm never going to cut off flesh from the waters of the earth. The whole rainbow thing. Um... So many retentionists, including myself, it's hard to get around this and just sort of dismiss it as some, somehow an archaic law. That it seems that, and this is the first time tonight I've stated my view, although you already know what it is, I'm sure. But it seems difficult to have this verse pre-Mosaic, apparently in a transcultural context, and not see some validation here for what we call capital punishment later on. I just find it a little difficult to get around that. So we have Noah as the... So 
in the Le in the Levitical law. The, yeah. So in the Levitical law, the way that's expressed is if an ox gores a man, you kill it. So you you're, you're not allowed to leave an animal alive that's killed a human. Yeah, I would say so. Oh yeah, we do. Yeah, pretty much. Well, I think based on Noahic law, you would need to do that. Yeah. I mean, no, like intentionality, dead. Intentionality is different for an animal. It's driven by instinct. So it's on a, it's on a different plane. But human life, the point being, I think, in the text is human life is superior to all other. And therefore, any other creature that violates the stewardship of humanity over it and takes human life goes. It also is meant, I think, by implication to protect mankind's supremacy as God's steward on earth. So, Noah's the head of the human race, right? We all come from Noah. He has permission to kill animals, but animals are not given permission to kill him. Uh, it is not predictive, um, but it is framed as an enduring law. It's the framework of it. So again, the, the dispensational framework, it's given on the far side, meaning before the Mosaic law to all of Noah's offspring. It is not, interestingly, superseded or replaced by Mosaic law. What does the Mosaic law do to it? It just gives it more specificity in that context. It adds the details to it, but it doesn't abolish it. So, given the fact that it is not abolished, but given more specificity, it does appear to be a transcultural law necessitating the acceptance of capital punishment today. It certainly appears that way, to me at least. So, we'd want to maybe deal with some of the difficult laws too, because then when you go to Jesus, I mean, people think about what Jesus says and they're interested in what Jesus says. So Jesus, for instance, um, the, in Matthew, let's go to Matthew chapter five. We'll just go to this last one for tonight. Thirty-eight to forty-five. So Jesus says, uh, "You've heard that it is said, an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth." So this is what this is what is known. I think this is a term. I think this is a term they still use in law. The lex talionis, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So like this universal policy of the punishment or the penalty should match the crime, that kind of an idea. So Jesus quotes the Mosaic Lex Talionis. So look at uh, verse 38, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, but I say to you, but I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil, but if anyone slaps in the right cheek, turn the other, the, take the tunic, the one mile to two miles, give to the one who begs for you and so forth. So we talked about this last week. Jesus quotes it, but then he pleads for personal passivity to personal, notice non-life-threatening, 
abuse for gospel purposes. But he doesn't actually dismiss it. The but is not, well, you've heard it said, but it's now wrong. Over here, you've heard it, you've heard the lex talionis. But I'm going to create a personal ethic for you, which is very specific to the context of gospel, abuse for the gospel. The illustrations he gives bear that out. They're really not about violence. We talked about the slapping of the cheek being the potty hand as opposed to the non-potty hand. So I don't think he's negating the lex talionis, but he's, um, he's extending it. So I don't want to get all too complicated here, but students of grammar tell us that there are disjunctives of negation, meaning you can use the word but to negate. Think about this, to negate what came before. Or there is a disjunctive of extension. You can use a but to extend, go beyond what was said before. And in this context, it seems to me that this is a disjunctive of extension. You've heard it said, but I'm going to extend that. I'm going to add some specificity to a different kind of scenario. Not, it's gone. It's, it's no longer there. His purpose is to plea for his disciples to endure hardship. And again, notice that the hardships do not involve allowing oneself to be murdered or physically harmed. So, not convinced that this negates the lex talionis, but it tempers it with a call to permit some degree of personal injustice for the sake of gospel witness. Certainly on a personal level. And this is, this is important too. When we're talking about, notice what we started with, war, last couple of weeks capital punishment, what we're really talking about is a corporate ethic, not an individual ethic. Because the individual doesn't go to war. might feel like you'd like to at times, but that's not the way it works. The individual doesn't put take into their hands divine law. And this is corporate, meaning like national ethics that we're looking at in these, at least these first couple uh, matters. So, uh, you know, again, there's something there to be said for Jesus, um, you know, Jesus too. He's, he's, if, he's, if he's somehow negating lex talionis and he's now creating a national law, the illustrations don't work very well because they're not national in orientation. They're all individual offenses. Okay. Several other passages I want to look at. We'll hold off on those till next week, but... Um, We'll just end there. Thanks for coming tonight. And uh, just continue to think about this stuff, study some of these passages, and you know, feel free to bring your questions or comments to class next week. Thank you very much.